The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com. ask you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians 4 is where we'll be this morning. I appreciate all the musicians leading us uh, to see and savor our Christ this morning. I appreciate uh, Leila Gray for, uh, for leading us uh, at the piano, and Ashley too, but... Uh, Leila Gray, we'll give her most of the most of the credit. Uh, I think we have a future budding musician that's coming along, and uh, uh, we're so thankful to see God working in our midst, to see Him working in our children and our youth, and and raising them up um, to value Him above all other things. Amen? Amen. 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 Well, I have a confession to make. It's always scary when a pastor starts off that way, and it. Uh, these past couple of weeks, I have been obsessed, not with another woman or not with anything immoral. I have been obsessed with the turnover of coaches in college football. I mean, I have absolutely been hooked. I have been just captured by it, and it's, it's taken a place of... Um, I won't even say borderline. It has taken a place of idolatry in my life, and I confess it to you. Uh, even my wife the other day said, you are nuts. You are crazy. Get off your phone. Because I was looking at all these things. Specifically, uh, because I grew up 30 minutes outside of Knoxville, Tennessee, going to those games at, at Neyland Stadium and watching them run through the power tee, which means nothing to any of you, but to me it's in my blood. Watching Tennessee football. And for the past several years, I'll just be real honest and say it before you can say it. You're already thinking it. We've stunk. All right? Uh, we've just not been good at all. We've had our, our share of, of uh, just dismal appearances. Our coaches have turned over. And so this time when, when Coach Derek Dooley was fired, I wanted to see who they were going to get. I wanted to see who... The uh, athletic director, Mike Hart, was going to hire in this position. I wanted to see. This was a crucial hire, and not just for them, but look out there at Steve with Auburn and, and the other of you with different schools. Um, and and it, was just, it just took me over. I spent way too much time impatiently on Twitter, on BleacherReport.com, on ESPN, and all of these things, just looking. I would... Pour through articles and blogs to find the best, most qualified candidate. And you know what I found? That at the end of the day, nobody called me. <laughs> they didn't call for my opinion on who they should hire. Time will tell whether that was a good hire to hire Butch Jones. But at the end, all of my research mattered very little. I, I think in some ways there are some similarities between coaches and pastors, particularly, not so much in, in the way the Bible lines out those, those two, those, the, the issue of pastor and church relationship, but I think in the way that churches approach pastors and sometimes pastors approach churches, I think there's some similarities. I think there are today, all across our landscape, particularly in our Western culture, in, in America, I think there's tons of pastors that are, that are right now pastoring smaller churches that are using a smaller church as a stepping stone to get to a bigger, more prestigious um, venue. 
I think there are churches out there that are, that are looking to hire a fiery, charismatic pastor who knows how to build a bigger program, who can fill the seats. I think, I think there's similarities here. Do you think that's right? I don't think that's right at all. I think, I think there's a sickness in some ways in the church in America as to how we have strayed away from Scripture. And anytime we stray away from Scripture, we have sickness. But we've invited this business model, this coaching model into the church, and this is how we approach pastor-church relationships. Today, even though this is not a Christmas sermon, I'm going to continue to preach through the book of 1 Corinthians. And the reason I've done that is because God is not silent on this. As I studied this and I looked at this and I thought, really, really God, you want me to preach a sermon about how the church should view me and how I should view them? I feel a little uncomfortable doing this. I'll just be honest with you. But I can't feel uncomfortable because God's not remained silent. And so since God has not remained silent on this issue, then neither can I. And we can't afford to say that's not important. We must say God has spoken, so let's see what he has to say. And let's then choose to obey. Amen? So let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 5 this morning. The Bible says, this is how one should regard us. Paul says this. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Today I want to walk you through and I want us to look, following the text, at how you should look at pastors. I've turned that in a generic term so it's not about me. You can make that inference if you want, but how you as church members, as the congregation, had view, should view pastors, how I or other pastors should view themselves, and then ultimately how God will see not just pastors, but all of us. These are the three things that we're going to walk through today. First, how you should see your pastor or pastors. In verse 1, he says, this is how you should regard us as servants of Christ. If you go back up to, in chapter 3 to verses 22 and 23, he's just said there, these ones that they're lining up behind, whether it's Paul or Apollos or Cephas, he says in verse 22, verse 22 or the world or life or death or the things that are present or the future, all are yours, he says. What he's pointing to here, and he comes right out of that, and he says, this is how you should see us as servants of Christ. Meaning that regardless of the pastor that stands in this pulpit today or the one that stands in this pulpit 30 years from now, he is a servant of Christ. He's there at the bidding of Christ. 
This word servant that Paul uses originally was used to describe a slave. And not just any slave, but a slave who had the job of, of an under rower, who was in the bottom of the ship, who most of the time was, was right at water's level, never saw the light of day. They were despised, and they, it was their job to row the big oars. And they were despised. Nobody wanted to be them. Even slaves looked down on those slaves. It came to be used, this term that Paul is using, it came to be used of any person who was subservient to another, someone who uh, had the duties of administering the affairs of someone else. So it went from being an under-rower slave to anybody that was under someone else. And this is the point that Paul wants to make, and this is the point that we need to get, is that no pastor has the prerogative to set his own agenda. He's not there to, to build his own kingdom. He's not there to make a name for himself. He's not there to become popular or to be liked. He is there subservient to the master. What this means is that a pastor is never to be self-serving as if he's building a kingdom for himself. Instead, he is to be humble. He's to be serving the people that God has sent him to. Demonstrating that he belongs to God. See why this is awkward for me to preach? I'm standing before you saying that a pastor is to be humble, knowing that in my heart there are times when pride wells up within me, and I know that in that in itself I am disqualified. But this should warn us, and I want you to get this as a warning. In a day of internet and podcasts and websites and, and, and radio and television and book sales and all of those things, it would be very easy for us to miss the master for seeing the servant. It would be very easy for us, in the same way that I made an idol out of college football coaches, it would be very easy for us to begin to make idols out of pastors. To begin to say, just like they were saying, I follow Paul or I follow Apollos. You could say, I follow Chandler or I follow Piper. We should never come to the point where we say, that's the end all. It should be a warning to us never to miss the master by becoming overly enamored with the servant. To make an idol out of any man. Paul says, this is how you should regard us using their plural word so that it, he's not just referring to him. He's certainly also including Apollos and Cephas. But I think it goes forward into today. And, and Paul even writes knowing that there will be future pastors that will stand in pulpits to lead at God's divine prerogative to send a man wherever he will send a man. And he says, don't view them as anything more than what they are. They are servants. Serving at the bidding of God. But also, he says, a pastor, you should view a pastor not only as a servant of Christ, but as a steward of the mysteries of God. This is how you should regard us, as stewards of the mysteries of God. In the first century, a steward uh, was often a slave again. Paul uses that term. And I know today, when we think of slavery, we think of another context. But slavery was different in, in a lot of ways in the first century, but he calls himself here a slave. But here it's a little bit different. 
A steward was often a slave who was entrusted with managing an entire household. He was the one who would oversee the vineyards, who would oversee all of the upkeep of the house, who would be in charge of all of the different ones who were laboring in different areas. This was a steward. He was entrusted with something. The main issue here is that it's someone who has been given a trust. Well, what is the trust that Paul is talking about that pastors have been given? Well, it is really two things that I want you to see. Not only is it the gospel, that pastors have been entrusted with the gospel. That if I come to you and and repeatedly preach to you but never get to the gospel, then I am not being a steward of what I have been entrusted with. That's why you hear us over and over again, and some of you think, man, all they ever talk about is the gospel. It's gospel this and gospel that. And and, and God stepped out of darkness and into light and and all of this because it's it's one of the only things that I've been entrusted with. It's not not my prerogative to come to you and say, look, here's what I was dealing with this week. Here's what I think would help you this week and leave the gospel out. If we miss the gospel, then we miss the whole point of Scripture. We miss the whole point of of existence, that we're not existing as stars in our own story, but that we are extras in the story of God. God is redeeming a people to himself for their good and for his own glory. That is what we have been entrusted with. This is the gospel. But not only the gospel here, when Paul says you should regard us as stewards of the mysteries of Christ, he uses a plural when he says mysteries. Not just the mystery, not just the mystery of Christ, meaning the gospel singular, but he says the mysteries of Christ. So what does he mean? Well, simply he means that it's not just not just the gospel story, but it is indeed all of the rest of Scripture. And this is why, as your pastor, this is why I am convinced and convicted to come to you repeatedly over and over again and preach to you sections of the Bible. To not just come flippantly and say, this week I'll be in Genesis, next week I'll be in 1 Corinthians, maybe the week after that I'll be in John, but instead we are systematically working our way through books of the Bible, verse by verse. And some of you didn't believe me, and then I went through Mark. And we took two years in Mark, and you came every Sunday and said, ah, oh, Mark again? Is there not anything? Does he know there's other books of the Bible? Right? And now we're in 1 Corinthians and we're, we're, we're working our way through. I was at a coffee shop the other day and, and the barista behind the counter knows that I'm working through 1 Corinthians. And he said to me, hey, how's 1 Corinthians going? I said, pretty good. We're just about to finish up chapter 3. And he just, he did a double take and he said, boy, you're really taking your time through that book. I said, yes, we are. Because I'm a steward of mysteries of Christ. I don't get to, you, to come to you. I, I can use college football as an opening illustration, but if I never leave college football, then I am not stewarding what God has given me. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be competent and equipped for every good work. As I studied for this sermon, uh, one of the commentaries I read was, was the commentary on 1 Corinthians by John MacArthur. 
And John MacArthur in his commentary recalls, he writes about recalling a, a magazine article that was written several years ago about a particular pastor that was well known. He doesn't give the pastor's name, but he gives the, the thoughts of that particular pastor who was well known and popular in that day. I don't know who it is, but he remembers what this pastor expressed. He says basically his thoughts were this. I decided that the pulpit was no longer to be a teaching platform, but an instrument of spiritual therapy. I no longer preach sermons. I create experiences. I don't have time to write a systematic theology to give a solid theological basis for what I intuitively know. What I intuitively believe is right. Every sermon has to begin with the heart. If you ever hear me preaching a sermon against adultery... You'll know what my problem is. If you ever hear me preaching a sermon about the coming of Jesus Christ, you'll know that, that that's where I am heart-wise. It so happens I'm not hung up on either of those areas. So I've never preached a sermon on either one. I could not in print or in public deny the virgin birth of Christ or the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ or the return of Christ. But when I have something I can't comprehend, I just don't deal with it. Let me tell you something. The people that are sitting under that man's preaching, they may be entertained, which will elevate that man to popularity, but they will die of starvation. The sheep will look up, as one writer said, and they will hunger because there is no food coming from the pulpit. It's not enough for us just to steward the gospel. It's, we must steward, pastors must steward also, the rest of the mysteries of Christ, the whole counsel of God's word. Let me just be honest with you. I took algebra three times. I never planned on going to college. The very fact that I went to seminary and have a master's degree still blows people away. So there are things that I come across in Scripture that I don't understand. That at first reading I say, what? Sometimes I say, is that really saying what I think it's saying? Other times I say, I don't know what that's saying. Especially when you read Paul, because Paul writes in these run-on sentences, and he goes for days, and you go, Paul, man, take a break. There have been many times where I have been tempted as I walk through a passage of Scripture to say, whew, let's just skip that one. But I have repeatedly told you that I am committed to preach verse by verse through books of the Bible. And so I have the privilege of getting into my study every single week and drilling down and saying, God, in my limited, finite mind, I can't possibly comprehend this. But God, would you do what you've promised to do? Spirit, teach me. Show me this truth. And I will study over this thing and I will let Scripture interpret Scripture and I will go to the different ways that that word has been used and this and look at the whole counsel of God's word and look at commentaries and what others have written and I'm not going to shy away from it. We must be stewards. Pastors must be stewards of the entire word of God. This should warn us. This should warn us not to think too little of the work of the pastor. You know, I've been in ministry for years now, and, and I have had more times than I could count. People come up to me and say, what do you do the rest of the week? And some of them joke. I mean, you just work on Sundays and Wednesdays, right? 
And I know it's funny, it's, it's a joke. But we should not think too little of the work of the pastor. If, if you go into a restaurant, and, and didn't plan on saying this, but if you go into a restaurant, let's just say it's fast food, and it's, but it's a little too fast. It's a little too fast. You get your fries, and they're not hot. They don't glisten because they've just come out of the fryer. Instead, they're kind of dull, and they're brown. And, I mean, Ronnie could play drums with them. I mean, they're just stiff, you know? I mean, would you in that moment say, well, you know, not a big deal? No. Many of you will take that box of fries, even if you've gone to the drive-thru and driven all the way home. Many of you have gotten back in your car, driven back to the drive-thru window and say, hey, I want some new fries. But yet we approach the work of the pastor who is supposed to deliver to us the word of life and say, Pastor, that was a long sermon. Pastor, you think you could shrink that down a little bit? We live in a world where we have, we have changed our values. We have things upside down. This should warn us that we should never think too little of the pastor's work, not to simply seek to be entertained by a gifted speaker, but to expect our pastors to preach the word. Every single week when I leave teaching back there in Sunday school, those two and three-year-olds, every single week I look forward to hearing those two and three-year-olds look up at me and say, preach the word. Secondly, how the pastor should see himself. How should the pastor see himself? Paul here in verses 2 through 4 says, Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. Trustworthy. Did you know that in this section there is only one requirement for the pastor? Yes, he is a servant and he's a steward, but as far as he is to see himself, there is only one requirement, and that is to be trustworthy, to be faithful. You know, it's easy at times to begin to compare myself and look at other leaders and look at their leadership skills or, or look at their, their sense of humor or look at, you know, man, their, their, just the size of their ministry or, or any of these things, the, the cool factor. You know, some of these pastors, they, you know, their, their hair is way cooler than anything I will ever ha have, you know. Uh, my hair is leaving. Theirs just seems to be getting just cooler, just keeping up with the trends. And I'll never have that. And I joke about that, but it's really easy, particularly on Sunday afternoons or evenings or on Mondays, for me to begin to look around and say, man, I'm just not very good. I wish I could be better. And it's real easy to get depressed sometimes, to sink down into that. I'm never going to have the voice of Adrian Rogers. You ever heard Adrian Rogers preach? I mean, he's died and he's gone now, but, but did, have you ever heard Adrian Rogers preach? And he stands and talks, and it's, I mean, it is, I mean, it's amazing. And I listen to myself, and I think, man, I, I got a cold or something, you know? What is up with that? I'm never going to have the voice of Adrian Rogers. I'm never going to have the wit of Matt Chandler. I'm never going to have the passion of C.J. Mahaney, right? Never going to. If you don't know who C.J. Mahaney is, just listen to him one time. He could, he could make reading the phone book sound incredible, and you would give your life to it. I'm never going to have that. I'm never going to have the theological IQ of a John Piper. But thank God I don't have to. God's never called me to be those things. God's called me to be trustworthy. 
Be faithful. You know, we sometimes use an expression, we say, we're not being good stewards. Well, what does that imply? We're being bad stewards. You know that it's, it's, it's impossible for a steward to be a bad steward. If you're being a bad steward, you're not being a bad steward. You are robbing. You are thieving. All he requires is that we be faithful. That we take what God has given us and we just be faithful. And he says to them there, look, look at the, the text, he goes on. In verse 3, But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. Paul says there is never put too much stock in the opinions of others, whether good or bad. There are, there are Sundays when I walk out of this, this pulpit and I come down and, and people will come up to me and say things like, Pastor, I could listen to you preach all day long. To which my wife gags a little bit. <laughs> there are other Sundays when I come down out of this pulpit and people won't make eye contact with me. Nobody wants to approach me. They're avoiding me. And I'm avoiding them because I know that, man, I, I should have brought that thing in for a landing a long time ago. You know? And everyone who's ever stood and preached in a pulpit or taught in a Sunday school class or anything, you know. We should never put too much stock in what people say. Whether it's good or bad. Because we know that in the end, and I'm going to get to this in a minute, that there's only one opinion that matters. When Tennessee hired Butch Jones this week in a press conference, one of the things he said was, uh, praise or blame, it's all the same. He tells that to his players. Praise or blame, it's all the same. And I thought, man, that is so, so needed. I need to hear that. I need to have that inscribed on the walls of my office. That when I go in there on, on Monday or Tuesday and I look up and I praise or blame, it's all the same. Some days, little old ladies are lying to me. And I need to know that, right? Oh, pastor, that was a wonderful sermon. That was the best sermon that has ever been preached in the history of this church. You know, I heard, I heard one, one pastor say that little old ladies lie and they're losing their memory. <laughs> we should never put too much stock in the opinions of others, good or bad. And then look at what Paul says. Last part of verse 3 says, in fact, I don't even judge myself. We should never put too much stock in the opinions of others nor in the opinions of ourselves. Because sometimes on Monday, I'm on cloud nine. And other times on Monday, I just want to throw it all away. Throw the towel in. I would imagine, I'm sure there were times when Paul could feel very good about himself. I mean, think about it. Paul wrote 13 letters of the New Testament. Out of 27 books in the New Testament, 13 of them? I mean, I bet there were times when he could feel really good about himself. But do you also realize that there were times when Paul could have felt horrible when he wanted to throw it all away? Particularly those times when they were hurling rocks at him. When he was shipwrecked. I can imagine him saying, God, really? But Paul was also aware that he had been wrong before. There was a time when Paul wasn't Paul, but he was Saul. 
and he was persecuting Christians and he was arresting them and having them put in prison and he was having others stone them. Stephen was stoned while he held the coats of those uh, who were throwing the rocks. And all the while, Paul thought that he was doing what was pleasing God. Sincerely. It's not like he knew in the back of his head, hey, this isn't right. Paul thought in that moment he was doing the Lord's work. Holding coats for the Lord. Stoning Christians for the Lord. Until one day when a bright light came from the sky and knocked him off of his horse and he heard this voice, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? See, Paul knew that he had been wrong before, that he was sincere in what he was doing, but he was sincerely wrong. And so we need to, pastors need to see themselves on, on Monday morning or on Sunday morning or whenever the case may be and say, you know what, I've been wrong before, I will be wrong again. Let me be trustworthy with what I have been given. This should warn us not to pay attention to our, our own press, not to read our own clippings, not to become swollen with pride, not to become mired in defeat either. But instead, we are faithful. Pastors are to be faithful. We should be content to serve where God has placed us with what He has given us for as long as He will leave us in that place. And when He calls us somewhere else, then we should go there and do the same, being faithful. We have pastors that are without churches that are sitting in our seats every single Sunday. Let me tell you something. Be faithful with where you are. Be faithful with what God's telling you to do. God has not forgotten you. He has not passed you over. Be faithful. Lastly is this. I'll move quickly through this. Lastly, not just how you should see pastors and how pastors should see themselves, but Paul wants us to get, God wants us to get how God will ultimately see us all. In the last part of verse 4 and in verse 5, he says, It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes. This does not mean that we should not exercise discipline when blatant, outright sin is being performed. I served in a church, the very first church that Lana and I served in together. It, it became uh, public that the minister of music was having an affair with his secretary. Half the church said, he can't do this. We must hold him accountable. If he does not repent, then he cannot continue to be the minister of music in this place. He cannot stand there and lead us to worship God when he is in obvious disobedience living a life that's contrary to it. The other half of the church said, what's the big deal? And they went to, they went to verses of scripture like, well, you know, Jesus said that he who is without sin, let him cast the first stone. Just ripped things totally out of context. And that's not what Paul is saying here. When he says, don't pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, he's not saying you can't ever exercise church discipline, even when it comes to a pastor. In fact, Paul, he goes on, and when he writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 19 and 20, he says, do not admit a charge against an elder or a pastor. We looked at that this Wednesday night except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. 
As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. Paul's not, he's not pulling rank here and waving the apostle card and saying, ha, off limits, you can't touch me. Instead he goes on and he says, look, if I'm ever in sin, if I'm ever refusing to repent, then discipline me publicly. I stand before you as, as your pastor in this congregation telling you that if I'm ever wayward in sin, do it biblically, but discipline me. Don't allow me to tear down with the one hand of my life what I am attempting to build up with the other hand of my preaching. There may come a time where I have to be removed from this pulpit. I pray it never happens. But except for the grace of God, there go I. Paul's not saying that we should not discipline when sin is evident. But what he is saying, what he does mean, is that there is only one opinion that will ultimately matter. He's not being arrogant in this statement. But he says, it's the Lord who judges me. Therefore, don't pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes. Because he will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness. And he will disclose the purposes of the heart. What Paul is saying to them is, look... I'm, I'm glad that you're interested. You've got to remember that he's writing this in response to their accusations against him. But he says to them, look, I don't know of anything that would disqualify me, but even so, that doesn't, that doesn't you know, make me blameless. God will determine that. But I don't answer to you. I answer to God. God's opinion is the only one that will matter in the end. Why? Because based on what he just said, that God will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart, what he points to there is there are some things that you and I can't see. That when we're quick to make judgments about a pastor, there are sometimes things that we can't see, good and bad. There are certain things that, like hidden behaviors and impure motives that we can't see. Sometimes there are things like pure motives that we can't see. God alone can see those things. And so let's, let's leave that up to Him. What this means is that, that there's going to be some in that day, some pastors that we will have judged to be successful who will be found out to be failures. They will have lived with secret sin. I will never forget my, my, my second call to ministry, when God reaffirmed my call and called me out of, out of that depression and that darkness in Alabama, and, and, and he did it through the church at Brook Hills when Rick Owsley was the pastor there. And I, I mean, I put Rick Owsley up on a pedestal because God, I had heard God's voice through Rick's voice. And I put Rick on a pedestal and I remember thinking, man, I just love Rick. When we lived there, our saving grace was that, that we would go on Friday nights. They had a Friday night service, and we would go, and that would be a date night for us. And I'll never forget what it felt like when I found out that Rick was cheating on his wife. And that when he was confronted, he didn't repent, but instead he left his wife and his family and went with this other woman. There's going to come a day when God is, is, and it's a day of judgment that God is going to bring to life these things that you and I can't see. 
It's possible, it is very possible for a man to trick you, to deceive you, because you can't see everything. You don't know his heart. You don't know what goes on behind closed doors always. But it's also possible that in that day, what this means is that there's going to be some pastors that we judged as failures who are going to hear the only opinion that matters, the voice of God himself say to them, well done, good and faithful servant. Some of these pastors that are serving little country churches that will never pastor a big church. They'll never live in a big city. They'll, they'll never have their name uh, mentioned anywhere other than, than in their church. They may serve for 30 or 40 years or longer in one, one pulpit and think, man, what, what am I doing here? What is it all for? They may want to hang it all up on Monday, and they're going to one day stand before Christ, and he's going to commend them. Don't miss that he switches from talking strictly about pastors here to including all of us. He says to them there in the last part of verse 5, he's going to bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. He could possibly be talking about each pastor, but I believe in the context of what we're reading here that he's writing to each member of the Corinthian church. Don't miss it. And it's not just pastors who will one day stand before God and give an account. But it's every single one of us. It's you, it's me, it's all of us. We will stand before God and give an account. I read yesterday a tweet from Randy Alcorn that if all of us are stewards, then what would you need to change now before the final evaluation. First Peter 4.10 says, speaking of all Christians, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. This should warn us against trying to always please everybody and should cause us to seek to please the one with the only opinion that matters in the end. Being a pastor is... Not always fun work. There are times when I walk in these doors. Haven't been lately, but there have been times when I have walked in these doors, in this building, as your pastor, where I've known that people were just shooting daggers at me, knowing the things that were being said out in the community and whispered in the, in the rows and the seats things that were being said on Facebook and Twitter and all of these things. There have been times when I have not wanted to come into this place. But the one thing that has continued to push me forward is that my life is not my own. When I stood there in that funeral home and looked into the, the dead body of my best friend and wondered where he was because I had not shared the gospel with him, I committed my life in that moment to go wherever he would have me to go, to, to do whatever he would have me to do as long as he would use me. I sat there in that backyard in Alabama saying, God, if you're going to use me, you've got to show me. And in that sanctuary at the church at Brook Hills, when Rick Allison said to me, Scott Ogle, come serve the body of Christ, Within me, I said, God, my life is not my own again. Please guard me from taking it back. Now, I love being your pastor. I love being your pastor. 
You need to hear me say that. I love you. I love you. I love being your pastor. I think, I, I don't, I'm not just blowing smoke when I stand up here and say, we're so thankful for what God's doing here. I mean it. Isn't it good? But don't let us ever be guilty of caring more about what other people think or what the community thinks. Instead, let me pastor for the audience of one. Let you live for the audience of one. Let us give our lives away to the stewardship of the mystery of Christ, the gospel within us, the grace that's been given to us, the way he's gifted you for ministry and service, that the people that are in your circle that don't know Christ, that will, if they die, will die and go to hell because no one has ever shared with them. Let's not live worried about what they will think of you. Let's live knowing that his opinion is the only one that will matter in the end. 1 Corinthians 10, 31 says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, across this room, all of us have confessions to make. God, across this room, every single one of us at times pulls other things into our view. And we are enamored by them more than we are enamored by you. So God, today I pray, Lord, that you would destroy those idols. God, I pray, Lord, that you would destroy public enemy number one, ourselves. So that, God, that you could reconstruct us and rebuild us, not in the image of ourselves, but in the image of your son. God, help us not to care more about the opinions of others, but in, indeed to care about your opinion. Yes, we live in a world where real things happen. And yes, God, we answer to, to bosses and different people over us. And yes, you put pastors and churches to lead. But God, let us never, never, never get caught up and care more about pleasing people than pleasing you. God, help us not to make judgments about ourselves or about others. Because we don't know all of what's there. Lord, help us to build one another up. Help us to encourage one another in the gospel, in the work of church. God, I pray for the relationship between myself and, and your flock here at Abner Creek. God, I pray, Lord, that you would... Just bind us together. God, that we would be content only when you are exalted and your word is preached. And God, I pray that you would have your way. God, move us out of our complacency. And Lord, bring faith that steps out in action. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.